and welcome to Broad Expressions. I'm Becky Doubleday. According to an October 2022 Gallup poll, trust in the mass media to report the news, quote, fully, accurately, and fairly, unquote, remains at a near record low, with only 34% of Americans having a great deal or fair amount of confidence in the media. At the same time, American trust in the media remains sharply polarized along partisan lines, and the prevalent topic of media bias continues to build steam. Dr. Sarah Netsley is an associate professor of journalism at Bradley University. She teaches journalistic writing and reporting classes, courses on media theory, race and gender, and seminars on fake news and media and political campaigns. Sarah earned her PhD from Southern Illinois University Carbondale, her master's from the University of Illinois Springfield, and her bachelor's from Iowa's Wartburg College. In addition to teaching full-time, Sarah is also a freelance news writer and television recapper for Entertainment Weekly, and she writes romance fiction under the name Sarah Whitney. Sarah, welcome to Broad Expressions. I am thrilled to be here. We are thrilled to have you. So trust in media is at a near record low in the U.S. with the time period around the 2016 federal elections actually being the rock bottom, it looked like to date. Optimistically, um, maybe you could say that there's been a tiny bit of improvement overall since we're not at total rock bottom. But is it actually a trend or or are we bouncing along still a bottom? we we have seen a downward trend in trust over the years absolutely and i i honestly don't feel very optimistic that things got better in 2020 perhaps now post 2020 we have new dominant voices in our political leadership you know we have new people sort of with the bully pulpit who are a little less down on accuracy in media and the job that the news media are doing. You know, the the current White House administration is a little less likely to brush off entire swaths of pretty traditional respected media. And I think that has to help a little bit. But we do still have social media. And one of the challenges with finding and navigating news and what is true and what is reliable is we so easily can build echo chambers for ourselves. And you've probably all done it. You know, you, you and I probably see some similar things in our social media because I think you and I have some similarities. We're from the same geographic place. We're kind of roughly the same in a lot of our demographics. So we probably have some curation that is similar news sites and similar entertainment options. But that guy from your high school, you know the one. He's got a whole different feed that he sees, right? He, he is not reading your news sources. He is getting information from other places that will provide him with different interpretations, different slants, sometimes different facts entirely. I'm using facts very loosely there. And so that does make it really hard to find consensus because we don't have these primary, we have the three big television news stations and that's where you get your news. It's not like that anymore. And the way algorithms work now, if you if you go down a path in one sort of school of thinking or belief system, you're going to get more of that and more of that. And you're going to see less of a diverse news content. And that that makes it really, really hard to have consensus about where we're headed as a country, what policies would be best for our lawmakers to embrace. It's really frustrating and a little scary sometimes to see the way there's almost two different realities happening. And the, the other thing that I think is really interesting is a lot of those 
research findings about trust in the media, some of those research findings show, and I can't speak for every survey everywhere, but people tend to say, I do not trust the media, but I trust my local news. So I don't trust NBC. I don't trust CNN. I don't trust, you know, whatever the case may be. But I do trust my local paper. I trust my local radio station. I trust the the anchor I see on TV every day telling me the weather and, and what's been happening in my community. And so when, when people talk about trust in the media, the, the media is not one thing. And that's what people have to remember. I don't trust some media. There's a lot of outlets that I am skeptical of, and I'm going to look extra closely at what they're reporting, depending on the source and who, you know, things like that. So when people say trust is down, yeah, it absolutely is. But the problem is our local news outlets are struggling. Um, There is a a decline. Newsroom employees have decreased by 70% since 2016. Now, that includes newsroom employees as well as production and distribution. So it's not all newsroom employees. But when you have such a sharp loss of a workforce in local local media outlets, you just don't have enough people to do the same job. Something is going to suffer there, and a lot of times it is. What can we cover? Can we cover six events? Do we have to choose two in a given newspaper or a broadcast? And so things fall through the cracks. And in fact, 7% of U.S. counties now have no local news source at all, 7%. And 20% of U.S. counties are at risk of losing their only local news sources. One in five papers have closed in the past 15 or so years. We're losing our local media outlets. And when those die, who replaces them? Nobody. You know, you're not going to find national news. You're not going to see WGN in Chicago giving extensive coverage to small Illinois communities. If something big happens, they will get a murder and they're going to truck out and cover it. But say a disaster happens someplace south of Chicago. Sure, you're going to get some large regional outlets that cover it. But for the most part, city council, school board, local controversies, local corruption, local elections – Nobody is picking up that slack. And so what happens to those communities? It becomes a news desert. There is nothing that is specifically written for and about the lives that they live and the people in their communities and the successes and the challenges. And that is a real problem. Now, there are some statistics about news deserts, some things that that researchers have found. Uh, The poverty rate of people living in these news deserts that don't have any local news outlets is 16% where the national average poverty rate is 11%. So you see a little bit more poverty in these news deserts. The household income is about $15,000 less annually in news deserts compared to places that have still local news sources. And about uh, 20% of people in these news desert areas have Bachelor of Arts BA degrees uh, compared to 38% nationally. So you just have less income, less education, a little more poverty. Now, does one create the other? Is it the chicken or the egg? I, I, I have not studied that. I'm sure there are people who have and are. But it does seem to me that if you don't have a lot of money and educational opportunities in a community, the drive to consume local news is less. And so you're more likely to see a, a withering and a, an absence. But then once that's gone, is your quality of life, is your standard of living going to improve? Probably not. And so it really does become a vicious cycle. So you're at risk for you know, the the health of a community, physical, mental, social, spiritual, and then also democracy. You know, how are we voting in our local elections? How are we finding that out? Is it a tiny column in the bottom of the biggest paper in your region that is there, but it's not the depth that you would have gotten if your local weekly paper hadn't gone out of business? So that is something that 
I'm not going to say keeps me up at night, but it doesn't bode well for trust. It doesn't bode well for an informed citizenry to make decisions about their lives. And it just, as goes media, so goes democracy sometimes. You know, as goes our access to information, so goes our ability to act on that information. And it, it, is, it is concerning. It is something that, that journalists, journalism scholars, journalism critics are, are watching very closely. The good news is there are nonprofits that have stepped into the gap in a lot of those communities and elsewhere. Uh, ProPublica, for example, has an Illinois branch here in the state. And they can't cover every small community, but they certainly are there to step in and can spend time and resources going after stories that maybe a daily paper that's struggling to stay afloat can't. So, you know, there are some some glimmers of hope, but it is the trends. You said optimism early on in, the, in our conversation. There isn't a ton of optimism in some areas, but I listen, I'm still educating students, I'm still teaching them how to be journalists, and I'm hoping that it empowers them with the, the skills and the tools and the drive to, if they see an opening where they could step in with a nonprofit or with some kind of creative solution to telling local stories, maybe they can, maybe they've been empowered and they, they have the skill, ability and interest to do that. That's That's the optimism I hold on to. Do you talk in your classes about um, different markets and are, are students aware about the job opportunities or non-opportunities within it? Because it seems there are fewer jobs, even I think disturbingly too, as we see a lot of industries that have now more jobs as the baby boomers age out, mm -hmm. but it, that doesn't seem to be holding true in, in journalism. Those are the students who are looking for those opportunities. Others, I think, are a little less motivated to seek it out while they're in college, and it really does become kind of a, what am I going to do? Graduation's approaching you know, where can I look? And that's where networking or uh, grad school or, you know, all kinds of options present themselves. So I can't say for sure what this generation as a whole are, are doing, but I know I try and my colleagues in the Department of Communication try to make them aware of opportunities and and create assignments or conversations or spaces for dialogue where we can say, there may not be traditional newsroom jobs here, but if you understand the fundamentals of this kind of storytelling or this kind of writing or this kind of editing, whatever comes next, you're ready for it. Whatever the next platform or technology, news on TikTok, I'll pause for everybody to, to cringe or sigh or clap, depending on how you feel about that social media platform. Right. Gen Z gets news on TikTok. And so how do we present that to them. I'm a huge fan of the Washington Post TikTok account. They do a great job of being funny and irreverent, but informative in a, a refreshing way. And so is that how ideally people would get their news? Well, you know, it depends on what you think about how news should be delivered. I am a fan of reading newspaper stories, but some people are not. And that's okay, as long as you are getting the information. And so I think... Some students, I think, are are interested in how can we find alternate ways to approach this? Or is there some way that I can do a podcast or a regular kind of pre-recorded go out in the community and bring the stories through a digital means, whether it's audio, whether it's on your phone, whether it's an actual physical printed newspaper? And others, I think, are 
I've heard sometimes when I ask students on the first day of class, I'll have my first day of class tomorrow and I'll ask them, what do you want to do? What's your career goal? And it could be the year after you graduate or it could be ideally 20 years from now when you're living your dream. And I've had a couple recently say, I just want to do as little work for as much money as possible. And listen, hey. More sure. Part. Sign me up. Where could is are, do they need interns? Is that right. paid? Can I do that? Right. Yes. And so and when you find that out, please tell me about it. If there are other opportunities available. So I do think there is a little bit maybe of a readjustment of what what are employment expectations for this generation and the pandemic has has involved a little bit of how much do I want to throw myself into a job and, and how much flexibility do I want to have? And can I get that in a traditional newsroom? Does a public relations job give me a little more of a life where it's nine to five and then I'm home? You know, so there's I see them balancing these things and I see them looking at the the way. I mean, I know people my age who who are, are still kind of grappling with, do I need to be in the office? Can I be a full time work from home? And, and I, you know, of course, a 19 year old is going to be either grappling with that or just expecting it, expecting that flexibility. And so that I think I just walked in complete circles around your question, but it's, it's, everything is so in flux, but my, one of my jobs is to, to say to them here are where there's some opportunities, you know, there, maybe you're not going to get the job at the the newspaper of your dreams right out of college, but look at all these, you know, magazines actually are, are doing pretty well, all things considered in, really? in the, yeah, in the communication industry, you still have so many specialty publications for trade, for industry, for hobbies, for interests. And so there are a lot of people Listen, I get that Costco magazine every month. There's a lot of written content in that. We had uh, Lewis Raven Wallace on campus in the fall to deliver the Robison Lecture. And it's our journalism lecture that we put on eh, once a year, or once a semester, kind of depends, uh, with uh, a well-known journalist or journalism educator. And uh, Lewis is a trans journalist. And one of the uh, things he talks about a lot is this idea of standpoint journalism. And one of the anecdotes he gives in, in his writing is, if a trans person wants to cover an event, like a a, a rally for trans rights, um, that they can run into trouble with a newsroom with an editor saying, we can't have you cover that. You're too biased. You know, you're, you're, you are trans. You're going to cover this rally. We're going to send this guy. Well, is straight not also a standpoint? Should this person, you know, are you able to cover? Is a white person covering racial issues not also a perspective that they're going to bring to it a bias, if you will. And so too often it's been the, the status quo and the people in power saying, you can't do this, you're biased because you're not like me. <laughs> so your opinion, because it's not like mine, is the one that's biased. Mine is the neutral one. So that's too often it's been editors, and I don't mean to hashtag not all editors, but you know, th- th- just too often it, those have been the kind of the natural default when in fact me covering you know, a, a protest for racial equality is as opinionated about race as a person of color. It's just that my whiteness makes me seem more default. And that's not the case. So that's, I just covered, this is like eight weeks of class that I've just tried to cover in 10 minutes. <laughs> but it's the yeah. conversations that we're having. And that's what, to get back to your original question, that's absolutely probably the biggest change in how I'm teaching students is considering where do you come from? What's your standpoint? Is it, are you assuming that you are neutral about things that you're really not because you're not. And how does that play out in how you approach assumptions about the world and your reporting and other people? You can even pull up charts. It's the media bias chart. Yep. The media bias chart. So 
you're saying, and you know, as we get down to the granular level level with the reporter, of how does all of this inform them? But then you've got also these outlets that are being, uh, I guess, graded mm-hmm. on on where they stand. Who's doing that grading, and how um, do you look at that? And is there uh, is there need for it, and is there accuracy in in what's being portrayed? There are several different charts like that. And so it is hard to say. Recognizing your own bias is really, really hard because what feels commonplace to you, you know, what do you mean you don't open your presents on Christmas morning? What do you mean you open them on Christmas Eve? What seems, that's such a (laughs) silly example. What do you mean you're Jewish and you don't celebrate Christmas? You know, but, but, but your default, your bias toward gift opening, you know, it's, it's, not something you examine until you're faced with somebody who does something different right. or you don't understand that this is an opinion you hold. And so it is hard to say, am I biased? Is my news choice biased or is it them? Are they the problem? It's hard. It's really hard to recognize. So I have seen some that I think you kind of have to, in some ways, use your gut a little bit and say, what do I gravitate toward and where is it on this chart and what do I, you know, as a critical thinker and consumer of news, how do I place these sometimes? The thing with those charts is there's an x-axis and there's a y-axis. So what I like about them, and I wish you could all see me making the standard curve sign with my hand, because you know, in the you have the left to right leaning sources. So you have left to right where people kind of come on that spectrum. But then most of these charts also have the most reliable to least reliable. And so in the the top, the center and just left and right of the top of the curve are the most reliable sources that are neutral-ish. And I, I wish I could remember there are some, is BBC one of them? That's one of the more neutral APs sort of up there. Um, NPR uh, is is a very reliable placement on there, but probably right. a little, they probably put it a little bit left. Um, but then it's, and that's fine. I think those are great to know. Okay, here's somebody that's accurate and reliable with their facts with a right-leaning perspective. Great. I love that. Here's a left-leaning perspective that is careful to fact-check for accuracy. I love that. It's when you get to the bottom of the curves where you have just no obligation to tell the truth because you want to make your side look good and the other side look bad. That's where I get nervous about any of those, but especially those that are far right and far left because they are trying. It is for political power. It is for political gain. It is for propaganda. And and too many, too many of some of those are held up by some media consumers as my source of news. And that worries me a little bit. But I do think it's important. I, I, the, the left and the right on the scale, that concerns me far less than up and down from most to least reliable. That's where I think people really need to be cognizant of how are we treating facts, because facts matter. Right. And are integral to yes to a robust democracy. Yes. <laughs> and even <laughs> and, having uh, a shared reality so we can have a conversation over yes. coffee. Uh, I've had experiences where I've, I've met someone who has different media diet than I do, who will say, hey, are you following the story about this missing girl or this blah, blah, And I have no idea what they're talking about because it's not been part of the media that I consume. And it's like we have, a, it's social construction of reality. News constructs our reality. It's all happening out there, but if a tree falls in the wood and it's not reported on, we don't know that it happened. So my reality is constructed by the outlets I choose. And if that story is not in them, but it is in someone else's, our realities just do not match. And it's okay if it's a missed story here or there, but when it is 
who won a presidential election, that's a problem. That's right. a real problem. Right. And you were talking earlier about the algorithms, too. Mm -hmm. And it does create, even when you're aware of the algorithms, okay, you know, if I click on this and I read this for so much time or whatever, that I'm going to be getting more stories. Mm -hmm. But even so, and you start seeing more stories on that topic or whatever, it it does kind of make you feel like, uh, oh, the world is starting to finally get what I know Mm -hmm. because... You know, I'm seeing this from whatever news source, and um, you're feeling validated whether you should be or not, you know, yes. it's <laughs> in just, what your choices are. It's a consensus chamber that, that you are hearing and seeing the same things that you already believe, and it, it confirms what you already know, and it's just, it's a cycle of, of sort of self-affirmation in some yes, ways. Yes, exactly. Dr. Sarah Netsley. Thank you so much for joining us today on Broad Expressions. I had the best time. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Broad Expressions. The show is a co-production between me, Becky Doubleday, and WCBU. It's recorded at WCBU's studios on the campus of Bradley University in Peoria. Our theme music comes from Peoria's Emily the Band, and the show is edited by Mike Sable. You can find more episodes of Broad Expressions or subscribe to this podcast at wcbu.org slash broad.